Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves cluttered with proof. A purple cowboy hat. Oh, someone's put up here on the wall a poster. It says, the personal is political. I love those dayglow flowers. This place, this warehouse, stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact, the evidence of the past. It's all that stands between a reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. It lies in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step out that door to Greenwich Village, across the passage of time to a Friday night, March 21st, 1969. Walk down West 4th Street, and up the steps to the Washington Square Methodist Church, a cathedral. It'll cost you $2 to get in, a donation to the Red Stockings, radical feminists best known for staging a protest at the Miss America pageant. There are 300 people seated in the church. Mostly women. There's a handful of men here, too. Oh, and lucky for us, there's a tape recorder up there on the altar. All of us are uh, members of the Women's Liberation Group in, uh, of New York City. And um, we, we discovered that by just talking about our own experience, about our own lives, that by talking about this all together in our group, that we were able to, um, to find out a lot more about reality than by talking about all those objective things. We would talk about our own abortion, and that was like our plan for this evening. So much of how people think about truth today comes from this one meeting, like water down a waterfall. Twelve women got up to speak, one by one. They passed a microphone. They testified for more than three hours. They were mad as hell. 
A month earlier, a committee of the New York legislature had considered whether or not to make abortion legal in the state. The committee brought in experts to testify, 14 men and one woman, a nun. The Red Stockings and other activists had stormed the committee meeting. They were camouflaged in dresses and stockings, they said. And they'd shouted, let's hear from the real experts, women! They'd tried to tell their stories without much success. So now they were here, in this church in Greenwich Village, to actually have their say. The tape, it's kind of crazy to listen to. The man is the one that screws you. And then when you turn to him and say, hey, look, sweetheart, I'm pregnant. How do you know it was me? You never slept with anyone else? One of the things I love about this tape is that it's not like women crying in front of Oprah or something. It's more like stand-up comedy, but confrontational, courageous. George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. All he says, he holds his head, he says, what am I going to do? What is he going to do? What am I going to do? These are the experts, the people that are sitting here, the people that are in the audience who have had the abortion, but no one wants to listen to us. I mean, you know... We are the only experts. They spoke out that night in 1969 because they wanted to change the law. They'd also decided to talk publicly about their abortions because some of them had been reading the writings of the communist revolutionary Mao Zedong. Maoists believed in the practice of speaking bitterness, describing your oppression and blaming your oppressor. That's what those women were doing in that church. They were speaking bitterness. They called it consciousness raising. They also called it rapping or a speak-out. I'm sure that there are many, many women in this audience that have had the same experience. So I'm no, you know, freak or that it just happened to me. It's happened to, you know, everybody, you know? So uh, if I get up and I say it, you know, maybe everybody can get up and say it. And if we all get up and say it, you know, maybe they'll do something about changing the situation. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems sometimes lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, we're trying to solve a whodunit, who killed truth. In this episode, I want to try to find a way to reckon with the consequences of a whole theory of knowledge. Speak your truth, radical feminists said in The Village in 1969. Speak your truth. Sure, it sounds good. It sounds great. Until you start to ask... What if someone else's truth is different than yours? No legislature would recognize my right to speak as an expert because it happens right in my body where a child grows. It happens in my body later on that I don't want that child and that I have to go through a period of time in which I have no function in the society. I've been talking all season about the end of the age of mystery and the rise and fall of the age of the fact. For a very long time, conception was a mystery. The mystery. The mystery of life. In ancient Greece, Aristotle dissected chicken eggs. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, was an actual experiment. Not until the middle of the 17th century did anyone figure out that people come from eggs, too. When the United States was founded, there were no laws against abortion before quickening, about when a mother can feel the baby kicking, 
somewhere around four months or so. Later, conception was no longer a mystery and became known as the facts of life. Physicians began replacing midwives, and legislatures began making laws that made the intentional end of a pregnancy a crime. By 1969 in New York, the only way a woman could end a pregnancy legally was to have something called a therapeutic abortion. Mainly, she had to convince a doctor that she was crazy. If you don't give me, if you don't tell me I'm going to have an abortion right now, I'm going to go out and jump off the, the Verrazano Bridge or whatever. When I had that therapeutic abortion, it cost me more for the therapy after the therapeutic abortion <laughs> than before. <laughs> this is the truth. Since this speakout took place, Americans have talked about abortion a lot, for or against, but usually in the language of rights, the right to choose, or the right to life. But I've always found that this debate is also about knowledge. I still care about the questions the Red Stockings asked. Who can know things? Who's an expert? Whose knowledge matters? I decided to go talk to some of the women who'd been part of that meeting in 1969 to hear them have their say in the spirit of speaking out. By the way, do you all want water? So my producer Ben and I and one of our researchers, Olivia Oldham, went to New York to the apartment of Susan Brown Miller, a feminist best known for a book about rape called Against Our Will. What was the question? (laughs) Brown Miller had first spoken out about abortion at an earlier meeting. A friend told her to go. At first it was awkward. Then one woman got up. She said, uh, we've been over this before, and you know goddamn well that I couldn't find an abortionist, and I had to carry the baby to term, and uh, it was a beautiful boy, but I had to give it away. So when she said that, the uh, floodgates opened, and people started to go around the room Uh, and they were talking about being led blindfolded to a place in New Jersey for a mafia-protected abortion. Mm. They were talking about things like that, and they were slowly inching up on me. So uh, I said, well, I've had three abortions all outside the continental United States. And my last one was about six months ago. And when I said that, I really started to cry. Because for me, this was the, you know, the first time that abortion was spoken about as a real, as a real woman's issue. And the problem was not getting pregnant or not having the protection. Why did you get pregnant, you know? Uh, it was about what we had to do to secure a safe abortion. Because I knew they were out there. Somehow, you know, I knew they were out there. They were out there, safe places to have abortions. But they were hard to find. They were underground. But what if they came out above ground? When Brown Miller went to the Red Stockings Wrap in the Village in 1969, it was as a reporter. And you said you were asked to speak I was there. asked to testify. Yeah. And uh, I felt 
uh, that, um, well, first of all, I didn't like it. You know, it, it was too confessional for me, you know. Mm. But second of all, I felt I could do ev- us all a bigger favor by uh, writing about it for the Village Voice, which I did. All this talking and writing led to a landmark legal case, which is where Nancy Stearns came in. She met us at Susan Brown Miller's apartment. She's a lawyer. She'd come out of the civil rights movement. I mean, challenging the law was the basis of it and was fundamental. But I didn't know whether we'd win at that point. I thought we should win. Just months after the Red Stockings held that first abortion speakout in Greenwich Village, Nancy Stearns got involved in trying to file a lawsuit called Abramowitz versus Lefkowitz. The leading plaintiff was Dr. Helen Abramowitz. And in the case, Stearns wanted to sue the state of New York arguing that its ban on abortion deprived women of their right to possess their own persons. She was also making an argument, though, about knowledge, that women know. The crucial idea from the litigation perspective was not necessarily having women as experts, but having women as plaintiffs, the Mm -hmm. people who were challenging the law, Mm -hmm. not just being sort of passive, oh, we happen to be there. Stearns wrote the briefs in the case, but she was young and a little inexperienced. And she wanted someone on her team who was older and who could kick ass. So she brought in Florence Kennedy. Flo. People magazine once called Kennedy the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battleground where feminist activists and radical politics join. Okay, everybody, while my chorus gets together, hurry up, chorus, get over here, y'all, hurry up. Flo Kennedy died 20 years ago, so we couldn't talk to her. But for a long time in the 1980s, she had her own television show on Manhattan Community Access. Picture between two ferns. I swear, there are ferns. More than two, though. The Flo Kennedy Show. Hi, y'all. Flo Kennedy here. And my guest has written... She wore a cowboy hat, a big 10-gallon one. Groovy jewelry, dramatic eyewear, eccentric, unmistakable. She was unforgettable. I remember her hats. Yeah, the hats, the, the cowboy yeah. hat. Yeah, wonderful yeah, cowboy hat. No doubt about it. Yes. I was lucky in a lot of ways. My parents thought we were absolutely perfect. And I'm the opposite of Marilyn Monroe, who was this golden goddess who thought that she was a piece of shit. Whereas I was a piece of shit, and I thought I was this bronze mahogany statue. Florence Kennedy, born in Kansas City, graduated from Columbia Law School in 1951. She opened a law firm in New York. For a long time, she specialized in defending Black artists like Billie Holiday. She also got involved in the Black Power movement. She defended Black Panthers, including A. Trap Brown. She loved to speak in metaphors. In terms of politics, I am what I would call a generalist, uh, sort of like a general practitioner. See, when people say, oh, I can work on race stuff, but I don't want to have anything to do with uh, homosexuality, or I don't want to deal with prostitution, or I don't want to deal with abortion. My theory is, the way I look at the pathology of our society and the pathology of oppression, is that you don't regard yourself as keeping a clean house if you just make up the bed. Don't do anything in the sink. Anyway, in 1969, Flo Kennedy, Nancy Stearns, and their legal team were preparing that lawsuit against the state of New York over its ban on abortion. They had to look for plaintiffs before they could file. So they thought of some of the women who'd spoken up that night in the village in 1969, the Red Stockings rap. I know from my own experience 
that I had luckily sense enough to see that a 17-year-old girl who gets herself pregnant by mistake because she has not been availed of birth control information is not in a responsible position to take care of a child. When I listen to that, I have to work a little bit because it can be a little hard these days to remember how new this was, how new this kind of talk was then. It's beyond novel. People did not talk about abortion publicly. That's Nancy Stearns again. We all knew generally, whether we had illegal abortions or not, we all knew generally what it was all about. But hearing the details of it and particularly, I think, Listening to the women who went through pregnancy and gave their children, their baby up for adoption, mm-hmm. it all just made me angrier, mm-hmm. in truth. Stearns held meetings all over the city gathering plaintiffs. Amazingly, women turned up, women stood up, they told their stories, and they agreed to be deposed on the record. Flo Kennedy took Susan Brown Miller's deposition. Kennedy and Stearns and the rest of their team wanted the women to testify in court, in open court. But the judges, a three-judge panel of men, they didn't want live testimony in their courtrooms about abortions. They probably thought, well, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of testimony. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have the time for that. We don't want to do it. You do it out there, and then you Mm -hmm. give us paper. But I think they didn't want Mm -hmm. to hear from a lot of emotional women. Speaking out was something new. But it's important to remember, too, that so was the lawsuit itself. Women were not part of the picture. Women, nobody was interested in women other than stopping us from getting abortions. But the court would never decide on the case. Because in the spring of 1970, the New York State Senate legalized abortion. Overnight, New York became something of an abortion capital. The CDC reported that by 1972, New York City had nearly twice as many abortions as live births. Because the legislature made abortion legal, the courts declared Abramowitz versus Lefkowitz moot. The case was basically thrown out. Florence Kennedy had hoped that the case would go all the way to the Supreme Court and change U.S. laws on abortion nationwide. That didn't happen. Instead, a case out of Texas, Roe v. Wade, got to the Supreme Court, and it would be argued on very different grounds, a right to privacy. But the red stockings and radical feminism left a profound legacy behind consciousness-raising, and speaking bitterness. And in the very moment that legacy was being founded, you could already see, too, how all this could backfire. If everyone's speaking bitterness, does everything come down to a duel of personal stories, one grief pitted against another, suffering versus suffering? Could it be that this, this endless duel of bitterness, Could it be that this is what killed truth? Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. In 1969, radical feminists had argued that women are the experts about their own bodies. They'd also written a manifesto. It said, We regard our personal experience and our feelings about that experience as the basis for an analysis of our common situation. Another group of women liked this approach, too. Liberal feminists. Liberal feminists wanted to get elected to political office and pass new laws about women based on what women know from their personal experiences. Laws about abortion. Laws about rape. Laws about discrimination in employment and education. They also wanted to amend the Constitution. In 1972, Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment and sent it to the states for ratification. It's amazing when you think about it that it wasn't already law, but all the ERA really says is that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. It had first been introduced to Congress in 1923, and by the middle of the 1970s, it still hadn't been ratified, but it looked like it was just about to become law. It had been ratified by 35 states, only three short of the number needed. Meanwhile, liberal feminists had gotten really ambitious. They decided to hold a national meeting, a giant speak-out. The point of the conference was to adopt a national plan of action. The National Women's Conference opened in November 1977 in the Houston Coliseum. Think of it as a second constitutional convention, except much bigger and with women. It was a grand and glorious sight. Accompanying the torch on its long journey has been... Weeks earlier, a torch had been lit in Seneca Falls, New York, the state of the first women's rights convention that had been held in 1848, then a relay of more than 2,000 female athletes, from lean and lanky marathon runners to brawny field hockey players, carried that torch 2,600 miles to Houston. It was meant to change history. 2,000 delegates from 50 states gathered in Houston, along with 20,000 attendees, including Susan Brownmiller and Florence Kennedy. 
Maya Angelou gave the convocation. We American women view our history with equanimity. We allow the positive achievement to inspire us and the negative omissions to teach us. We recognize the accomplishments of our sisters, those famous and hallowed women of history, and those unknown and unsung women whose strength have given birth to our strength. Three first ladies were there too, Lady Bird Johnson, Betty Ford, and the current first lady, Rosalind Carter. Jimmy's sorry that he couldn't be here today. And I wanted to come and be with you. In fact, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. And I, tr- <laughs> and I trust that you are not going to say he sent a woman to do a man's job. Members of Congress turned up too, Bella Abzug and Barbara Jordan. She was the keynote speaker. And there were celebrities, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, Billie Jean King, the tennis player, and Jean Stapleton. She'd played Edith on All in the Family. Gloria Steinem, a founder of the National Women's Political Caucus, was there. And so was the president of the Girl Scouts of America, who called the meeting to order using a gavel once used by Susan B. Anthony. And I rise to address this body in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. A lot of the women at that conference were there to celebrate, including Ann Richards, later the governor of Texas. One of her daughters, then just a little girl, would one day serve as president of Planned Parenthood. I rise on behalf of my own daughters who cannot find women in the history texts of this country in the elementary schools. I gotta say, you still can't find many women in those books today. And you also really can't find much about the National Women's Convention. There were huge tensions in that cavernous hall in Houston. Madam Chair, Pro-family, pro-life delegates are being denied points of privilege. I Just have a risen. moment, please. Just a moment, please. The parliamentarian instructed the chair. The chair had to pound that gavel a lot. Just for starters, think about this. One out of every five elected delegates to the convention opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. There were huge debates on the floor about a resolution supporting lesbian and gay rights. This was a movement founded on the idea of women's common knowledge, their common personal experiences. But it had a fatal weakness because one experience for all women? There wasn't one experience. Black feminists and Latina feminists in particular rejected that premise. At the conference, women of color formed a minority caucus. Some of their thinking was informed by black feminists from Boston who had offered a theory of what would come to be called intersectionality. They said, We have in many ways gone beyond white women's revelations because we are dealing with the implications of race and class as well as sex. That week in Houston, a lot of that nuance got lost, and there was a lot of fighting. One resolution in particular rent the hall asunder. Resolution 21. Next item on the agenda is the resolution on reproductive freedom. It included a call for sex education and insurance coverage of both contraception and abortion, and an endorsement of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade. The first speakers rose in support. Then the conservative delegates spoke out. And I rise in opposition to this resolution. If the American women do not drive out this flaw in the philosophy of what is called a feminist movement, 
drive out the flaws suggesting that they can kill people that are less powerful than them, then they have become much worse oppressors than any of the men that they accuse of oppressing them. Please come to order. Please come to order. It took a while to quiet down the crowd long enough to call the roll, but the chair managed it and counted the votes. The resolution on reproductive freedom is adopted. A group of pro-life women rushed the stage carrying a giant photograph of a fetus. Other women fell to their knees weeping. And that singing? They're singing, all we are saying is give life a chance. 1,500 reporters attended the conference, but strangely, the whole thing seems to have been swallowed up by the earth itself. I ask you, have you ever heard of the 1977 National Women's Conference? I'm guessing not. Reporters covered it, but given the ambition of the thing, the coverage was scant. NBC News included a report in its news hour. The conference's stand on the Equal Rights Amendment will be incorporated into a national plan of action, a set of legislative proposals to be sent to the President and Congress. The question now is, how seriously will all those men take the suggestions made by all these women? Hmm. It would turn out not very seriously. But Houston wasn't about men versus women. It was about women versus women. Mainly because conservative women organized a counter-conference across town in the Astrodome. The organizers described their assembly as a pro-God, pro-life, pro-family rally. The leader of this gathering was Phyllis Schlafly, a mother of six from Missouri with a perfect blonde bouffant, who very often dressed impeccably in a pink suit and pumps. Schlafly was a political genius, and she devoted all of her talents to defeating the Equal Rights Amendment. She founded a national organization called Stop ERA. She told her followers, ERA means abortion. She also rallied women to her movement by tying the ERA to rights for gay men and lesbians. In Houston, she claimed, she'd been banned by the National Women's Convention. And on its third day, she held a press conference to say that conservative women hadn't had the chance to speak their truth. If you were at the convention last night, I think you also must have been impressed with the fact that there really isn't any debate on the Equal Rights Amendment. Most of the speakers at the pro-life, pro-family counterconference spoke the language of radical feminism, the language they'd adopted, a language that by now had suffused the culture and altered the nature of political conflict. We are busy engaging, raising the consciousness of the public all over America. And we are in the business of raising the consciousness of our lawmakers in Washington. And when Phyllis Schlafly took the stage, this crowd went wild. Many had been to the other conference, the National Women's Convention, but now they were home with family. There are many differences between this meeting and the one in that other hall today. I'm very proud that they excluded me from that convention. The whole thing was designed 
as a media event, a charade to go through the motions of these phony state conferences and national conferences in order to pass resolutions that were pre-written and pre-packaged a year and a half ago to tell the Congress and the state legislatures that this is what American women want. By coming here today, you have shown that that is not what American women want. The women in the Astrodome waved Bibles. They wept and they spoke out. And they endorsed their own resolutions, including their own version of an Equal Rights Amendment, Equal Rights for Fetuses. Therefore, be it resolved that the Congress enact and the states ratify a mandatory human life amendment to the Constitution to protect all persons born and unborn from conception. Be it resolved that we oppose the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. All in favor say aye. All right. Therefore, be it resolved that homosexuality, lesbianism, or prostitution shall not be taught, glorified, or otherwise promoted as acceptable through the laws of society, through the adoption of children, or within the institutions such as our schools. All in favor say aye. By rallying conservative women against the Equal Rights Amendment, largely on the back of arguments about abortion and homosexuality, Schlafly managed to turn the tide against the ERA. Ding dong, the witch is dead, ERA opponents sang, when word came of its defeat, five years later, in 1982. The National Women's Convention had failed and was soon forgotten. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance... Check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school 
but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. In the 1960s, radical feminists argued that the personal is political, that lived experience, the speaking of bitterness, counts as evidence. In the 1970s, liberal white feminists embraced this idea, too, and so did African-American feminists. And so, too, in the end, did conservative women, who very soon would help elect a conservative to the White House. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. In 1980, three years after the dueling women's conferences in Houston, Ronald Reagan was elected president. Earlier, as governor of California, he'd signed a bill liberalizing abortion laws, but he'd since become a staunch ally of Phyllis Schlafly's. In 1980, he ran on a GOP platform that included a plank dedicating the party to the right to life for unborn children. This nation cannot continue turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the taking of some 4,000 unborn children's lives every day. That's one every 21 seconds. One person who was really affected by that speech of Reagan's was a doctor named Bernard Nathanson. Nathanson had for a long time conducted abortions, but he changed his mind about abortion, he said, after the development of ultrasound. Reagan's speech convinced him to make a film. Released in 1985, it was another kind of consciousness raising. Now for the first time, we have the technology to see abortion from the victim's vantage point. The film is called The Silent Scream. And so for the first time, we are going to watch a child being torn apart, dismembered, disarticulated, crushed, and destroyed by the unfeeling steel instruments of the abortionist. Nathanson was a doctor, but he narrates the film as if he is a lawyer, eliciting testimony from the fetus, its personal experience. He's a ventriloquist, speaking out the fetus's truth. Once again, we see the child's mouth wide open in a silent scream in this particular freeze frame. This is the silent scream of a child threatened imminently with extinction. Prominent physicians... Obstetricians and gynecologists criticized the film as misleading and inaccurate, said that the cortex of a fetus of this age wasn't developed enough for the fetus to feel pain. And of course, the film simply erases the body of the woman. Most of the film involves Nathanson showing plastic models or ultrasound film from inside the uterus. Lots of models of fetuses, lots of fetuses inside uteruses, but not really inside women's bodies. You barely see any women and none of them speak. They're utterly silent. Reagan saw the film and talked about how much it had affected him. He said he wished every member of Congress would watch it. Silent Scream aired, among other places, on Jerry Falwell's TV show, and it was also widely shown at high schools across the country. But pretty often, the broader public just argued over what they'd seen. They didn't merely disagree. They argued absolutely. Abortion had become either all one thing a brutal murder, or all another thing, just another medical procedure. 
This had become a debate about moral absolutes, about who was good and who was evil. It had also got bound together with another movement, the victim's rights movement. Without a victim to testify, a criminal may go free. The victim's rights movement began in 1975 with the publication of a book called The Victims by a law and order conservative from the Heritage Foundation named Frank Carrington. He wanted laws that would be tougher on criminal defendants and harsher punishments for the convicted. He and other conservatives were waging what's known as the war on crime. A lot of feminists joined that war. They wanted more aggressive prosecutions and stricter sentences for violent crimes against women and children. Believe the women, they said. Listen to their testimony, not just about abortion, but about rape and domestic violence and child abuse and more. And then, in asking for harsher punishments for men, they made common cause with conservatives. The innocent victims of crime have frequently been overlooked by our criminal justice system, and their pleas for justice have gone unheeded, and their wounds, personal, emotional, and financial, have gone unattended. This is Ronald Reagan, speaking in the Rose Garden, April 1982. So I am signing today an executive order establishing the President's Task Force on Victims of Crime. Reagan's task force recommended that victims of crime be allowed to speak during sentencing hearings to explain the nature, the scale of their suffering. This kind of statement came to be called victim impact evidence. As a matter of intellectual genealogy, it comes from consciousness raising, from speaking bitterness, from speaking your truth. Let the victim speak. The Me Too movement is founded on the evidentiary principles of the victims' rights movement. Believe the women. Speak your truth. In 2018, Larry Nasser, an Olympic gymnastics coach, was convicted of sexual assault, the abuse of children. His sentencing hearing in a Michigan courtroom was broadcast on live television, something that doesn't happen very often. And something that really doesn't happen very often, the judge allowed 156 women to deliver victim impact statements. Thank you. What would you like me to know? For the last year, I have lived behind the shadows of the name Jane Doe. I was afraid to be identified as myself and didn't want to accept this as my story, but I can't push it off anymore. This happened to me, and I have a name. My name is Cassie Powell. Your Honor, if it's okay with you, um, I'll be addressing the defendant directly for a lot of this statement. You may. I still remember the first time I ever saw you, Larry. March 26, 2010. Their statements are harrowing. They're hard to listen to. The courage it took to say those things. But the whole thing is also weird. More than 150 women delivered impact statements in court. Nasser had been charged with sexually assaulting only 10 of them. By this point, he'd also already pled guilty, and he'd already been sentenced to 60 years in prison on child pornography charges. So what were all those statements at his sentencing hearing about? In a courtroom cluttered with cameras, 156 women spoke of the harm Nasser had done to them. But these were crimes for which he had not been tried. On Twitter, using the hashtag MeToo, people expressed relief and excitement and gratitude to the judge. They thought she was a hero. But a lot of legal scholars were shocked at the way the judge handled her courtroom. 
and at how watching the sentencing hearing on television felt something like watching a daytime talk show. It's not that those legal scholars questioned the suffering of the women who spoke that day, or the truth of what they had to say, or even that they needed to say it. It's that they questioned the place of those statements in this courtroom. Saying this out loud to you is extremely uncomfortable for me, and I'm sure for everyone who is listening. It is supposed to be uncomfortable. I would be doing myself and the other brave women here a great disservice by shying away from what is now my truth. The Me Too movement is both lifted and burdened by the history that came before it. A history that carries this idea. Everything I say is true, everything you say is a lie. To question me is to do me harm. If we disagree, whichever of us has suffered more wins. Fighting child abuse and sexual assault is crucial. No question. Those movements have done great good. But that doesn't mean they haven't also contributed to an epistemological chaos seized by absolutism. Proceed, please. My name is Christine Blasey Ford. During the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh, people wore buttons that read, I believe Christine Blasey Ford. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. It was hard for me to breathe, and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. She spoke her truth, and then he spoke his. I was not at the party described by Dr. Ford. People tweeted, I believe Brett Kavanaugh. I'm here today to tell the truth. I've never sexually assaulted anyone. What was the truth? Honestly, it was hard to say. For the record, I believed her. I believed her because of my personal experiences. I believed her because my experiences of being a person in the world are a lot more like her experiences than like his. But is that enough? I don't think that's enough. People keep on speaking bitterness with the absolutism of the abortion debate. This divide, though, it isn't about abortion. Actually, it's not even a divide. Because here's the thing everyone seems to agree on. Speak your truth. So who killed truth? Maybe everyone. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadefhafri. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell and Martine Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Henson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theater, the Schlesinger Library, the Flo Kennedy Show, produced by Don Lynn, the Internet Archive, Alex Allenson in the Bridge Sound and Stage, and to Simon Leake. 
At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Cutts, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com.